You're listening to My Therapist Thinks, a modern mental health podcast. We're your hosts, Andrea Bozia and Mary Beth Samich. We are licensed therapists with a passion for making therapy accessible, relatable, and relevant to your life. Let's get started. Today, we're talking about social media as a means for both connection and disconnection. Where's the happy medium here? How do you know when you might need a social media break? And what are some healthy boundaries to establish when it comes to social media? I think it's fair to say that most of us use social media to keep up with others, maybe stay in the loop, learn new things, etc. But in an effort to connect, are we actually disconnecting? We want to start off by discussing some of the potential pitfalls and then some of the benefits to social media use so that you can get a feel of whether or not you feel that your particular use is helpful or harmful to your mental health. Exactly. So we came up with five potential pitfalls. And the first one might be the most common, and that is comparison trap. And comparison is a double-edged sword. So you really have to decide for yourself whether it's something that drives you in more of a productive way or something that leaves you feeling inferior and depressed. And that's going to look different for everyone. And maybe even at different times when it comes to different things or aspects of your life. So the inspiration that you've might feel about someone else's achievements can rev up the motivation to improve your own life. And at the same time, it might be harmful if it leaves you feeling inferior. And I really want to emphasize here that so many times on social media, people are really sharing their peak experiences, their most flattering news about themselves. And this is often referred to as their highlight reel, as you might've heard. So they're throwing filters on, they're leaving out hardships, they're editing out unflattering angles that every one of us has. So it's important to simply remember this before falling into that dangerous comparison trap. And remember that what you're seeing is what you've been allowed and invited to see. The behind the scenes can often look very different and that's what we don't see. That's a really great point. I love that piece of what you're being allowed and invited to see. That is a tailored, filtered experience that people are giving off. Yeah, absolutely. And it it reminds me of an article that I read a while back where some plastic surgeons were talking about this new phenomenon in their offices that they're seeing of people coming in like early 20-somethings, and they are showing pictures of Snapchat filters to their surgeons and saying like, hey, I want to look like this, which I didn't realize. (laughs) Like, hey, like make my nose like this or make my cheeks like this. And because it became so common, people within that plastic surgery field have named the Snapchat dysmorphia. Mm -hmm. Kind of like body dysmorphia, sure. Like the idea of bringing in this unrealistic, almost cartoon image and saying, I want to look like that. Right. And then there's this whole psychological piece of comparing yourself to this altered image that never exists within reality, right? Like it It's intended to be an illusion. Right. And it's almost impossible to argue that that's a healthy mindset, which leads us into the number two pitfall is like the effects on our health that social media can have if it's not used well and with boundaries. So, I mean, I just think, could you be doing something healthier with your time? 
right? And the answer is probably, of course, I think immediately, I think like going for a walk or a run or meal planning, cooking, truly relaxing, unplugged, um, things like that. Yeah. And when we think about social media, we're probably accessing it through our phones, right? And we're probably scrolling a lot and looking at all sorts of different images. And I think that this can affect our food choices because it's a doorway to mindless eating, right? So if we're on our phone, we're probably noticing some advertisements for food and we might reach for, you know, the chips or the sugary something. And we're just sitting there and we're consuming this food while we're consuming all this other mindless information. And before you know it, you've probably eaten, you know, the whole bag, or maybe you've eaten more than the serving that you had initially intended to, Mm -hmm. but it just becomes this habit. Yeah. And I've heard that warning come often when it comes to television. Like if you're watching a movie in a theater, how much popcorn are you really consuming? You know, it's pretty mindless as you're sitting there just watching the movie. And the same thing goes for scrolling on your phone too. And then I think, you know, usually when we're eating mindlessly and scrolling mindlessly, we're also sitting, right? Because you're probably Mm -hmm. not eating and scrolling while walking, unless you're really talented. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> At least I can't do that. Oh, so, I sprained my um, ankle doing that once. Let's not. Oh mm-hmm. my goodness. Oh no. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when you're sitting, eating and scrolling, I just think about like our heart health and how it increases the risk of heart disease, weight gain, diabetes. I mean, and keep in mind, there's like a bunch of confounding variables in here, like sleep, stress, less movement, et cetera. Like, yeah, it's just not great for us. Yeah. So even though there might not be like that direct correlation between I'm on my phone scrolling and, you know, I have a higher risk of heart disease, it's creating this environment where that could be a greater likelihood because it encourages you to sit more and reduce movement and all those other pieces. Yeah. Maybe this is a good time to talk about like, it doesn't mean that one thing causes the other. It's just correlated. So correlation over causation. That's something we learn in grad school. It's like pounded into us. (laughs) And another correlation could be blue light exposure. Definitely. Yeah. So I was actually looking into this and I came across this retina surgeon named Dr. Jessica Lee in New York. And she's done some research that's linked too much blue light exposure, particularly at night. So this means scrolling in bed when the lights are off to insomnia because that blue light, because we have these blue light sensitive molecules in the retina and they're also responsible for setting our body's circadian rhythm. And if we have excessive blue light exposure, then it can suppress that release of melatonin. And melatonin is that hormone that helps set that sleep-wake cycle. And if we disrupt that, then inevitably we're going to disrupt our sleep patterns. Wow. That, yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Just kind of a random fact. Last night I read that cherry juice is a natural source of melatonin. So (laughs) yes, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I need to take some, drink some of that before bed. Mm -hmm. Um, Not to say that like you can be on your phone all night and you have a ton of blue light exposure and cherry juice is going to fix it. But I just (laughs) thought that was kind of interesting. Um, But I really cannot tell you or emphasize enough how many of my clients, usually teens, that this is affecting. And they will come in and they will say, you know, I'm having such 
a hard time sleeping. And then we'll get into some of their lifestyle habits. And I'll ask, you know, I'll find out anyway, that they're scrolling or they're watching TV and until literally two or 3am, sometimes even later or playing video games. And that's when I know we have to have a serious talk about impulse control when it comes to electronics at night, and that maybe there's even a deeper issue at play. Yeah, I agree. And the longer that someone is in this cycle, the greater amount of sleep deprivation there is. Right. And so it's kind of like a, a vicious cycle because the less sleep we, we are, the more like we are, likely we are to scroll on social media. And typically when we're scrolling, it actually isn't as relaxing. Research is showing us that it's more exciting or stressful because we're like seeing things that are either making us like want to get out of bed and do more stuff or have like really intense feelings such as like FOMO of like, oh, I see these people are out or doing something. I wish I was there. So it can really be linked to symptoms of depression too. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to be grumpy if you don't get the sleep that you need. And it's not just blue light exposure, but screen fatigue in general, right? It can really mess with your eyes and just your overall well-being, right? Like how you're feeling day to day, just like eye fatigue, screen fatigue. Yeah. I was blown away that there's actually a diagnosis for this. It's called computer vision syndrome, CVS. And it was, oh, it's kind of like the drugstore too, but um, (laughs) it was was coined in the early 2000s. I think when there was this big ramping up of using cell phones and I think around that time, Facebook came out and things like that as well, which kind of encouraged more use of on your phones and on your laptops and whatnot. But screen fatigue can really be triggered by any screen. So that's a phone, an iPad, a computer, a TV, just anything electronic. I would love to see how many kids, right, are needing glasses and whether that is increasingly rising, especially for, I always get this switched, but I guess it would be nearsightedness. Right? Yes, for far away is nearsighted. Yeah. 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 If they're always looking at a screen up close, just yeah, how that's having an effect on them. And also body aches, right? Like every time I'm at the chiropractor, one of the questions is, you know, how often are you looking at a screen? Because you're probably sitting with your neck down, looking down at a phone, or it can have some issues, you know, with your spine if you're just like on a computer all day. So that can really take a toll too. Oh, absolutely. And so with your head, your neck, your back, and then of course your eyes, right? Because if our eyes are looking at one focal point for so long, it's naturally going to become fatigued. So if your eyes fatigue, then you might see some things double and your eyes might get blurry and there might be some dry eye. And so the American uh, Optometry Association actually came out with this little rule to help you kind of break out of that dry eye body ache syndrome. And it's called the 20-20-20 rule. So I like this because it's easy to remember. But what they suggest is that every 20 minutes, you look out about 20 feet from the screen and you look at whatever is out of that screen for about 20 seconds. So by doing that, I think it kind of like resets the body and resets your eyes to be like, oh, okay, there's more than just what's on my screen right now. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. And I wonder if it might be helpful to 
work on a screen that kind of tilts so that you can adjust that eye line or even like make text bigger, like little tricks like that. Absolutely. And I think it's also important to remember to blink. <laughs> like it's such a strange thing, but even um, I do this a lot with my clients when we're practicing mindfulness and I uh, encourage them blinking a little bit more than they would typically do to kind of clear their field of vision. Because when we become really focused on something, research is showing us that the amount that we blink even within one minute almost goes down to like half. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when we're doing that, of course, our eyes are going to become more fatigued and dry and heavy and all those things that don't feel so great. Mm -hmm. And I think about the importance of blue light glasses. I know they've helped me a lot and many of my clients speak volumes about them. But, you know, if you have a heavy computer tech job, blue light glasses are a really great resource. Awesome. I haven't tried them, but I do think there's an option now, like, because I do wear glasses on the occasion when I'm not with my contacts. And I think they can like put on a film now. Like they say like, do you want this blue film or whatever on your glasses? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I bought mine right on Amazon. I think they were like 20 bucks or less and they work great and definitely help relieve any headaches or anything like that. So I highly recommend. Um, but that kind of brings us to the fourth potential pitfall. And that is, you know, decreasing truly social behavior. So, you know, while a person might have a large number of friends on social media or followers, the hours required to maintain those online relationships will often cut into the amount of time spent with people in real life settings. So I hear a lot, you know, that my clients feel lonely, even though they're spending all this time talking to friends through DMs and messages and things like that, like it's still lonely because as humans, we really need that truly social in-person connection with someone. Yeah. You know, that makes me think about the idea of connecting truly and the importance of being in the same room with someone and like proximity and eye contact and even touch, like how all those things play a role in regulating our nervous systems. And if half of those pieces are missing, are we really fully like communicating and engaging with that person, like meeting that need, like evolutionary need for social connection? Right. We know that we tether our own nervous system tethers to the health of the nervous system of the people around us. So I think about some of my clients who are in households that are very stressful and they might be in more of a sympathetic or a dorsal nervous system state, you know, anxious, depressed. And if they're not seeing their friends, and this has been especially challenging during COVID, but if they're not around some of that more ventral, happy, regulated energy, you know, it doesn't matter that they're texting those people. They can't feel that. Their nervous system doesn't have an opportunity to kind of rise up the ladder into that more regulated state because they're not actually in proximity to that other person. So I think, you know, it is really worth kind of understanding thematic psychology to like really truly grasp the importance of being with other people that are really healthy for you and, and help you feel happier. Yes. And I think that, you know, brings up the topic of building your self-confidence in a social space as well. You know, because like the more time one spends scrolling and watching other people's lives unfold, be that like, you know, real or fictional, whatever you're inviting them to see, you know, the less time you're going to have to explore your own life and live it out. 
there's just less opportunity for being creative and trying and failing and then trying again and, and building that feeling of competency within social relationships because I feel like there's like this sense of permanency within the online world. Like you post something and then it's out there and like all these people see it. And mm -hmm. then we have this like digital footprint and then it's, that can feel really scary, like to take risks and to figure who, out who you are online. It's, I feel like it's a lot different than when you're like in a social setting where things may aren't necessarily recorded word for word. Yeah. It also, I've seen it go the other way where there are some people that kind of use social media to hide behind it and might put stuff out there that they wouldn't normally say to someone in person or be more bold or more daring because they feel like they have kind of like this safety net behind the screen. Great point. I think I've heard of the that experience called as like people being keyboard warriors. Oh, I haven't that? heard that. <laughs> no. Yeah. That's or in the South, though. a keyboard cowboy. Oh my um, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's true. Like you're right. People can be really tenacious and sometimes, gosh, I don't know what the word would be, but just like mean. Bold. 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 Yes, bold. Yeah. Yeah. And say things perhaps they wouldn't to the person and because they're not regulating with that person at the same time, right? They're not co-regulating. It's just like, I'm going to say this thing. And then like, you don't have the opportunity to actually see that person's response. I think that's a, that's a really important point. Maybe we'll spend more time on that in another episode. Yeah. And speaking of co-regulation, that's a good segue into the last and final pitfall. And of course, we have to talk about addiction. So for some people, social media use can reach a level where it has many of the characteristics of addiction, including just being totally mentally preoccupied with it so that they might forego other experiences to just be on it and hide or downplay their use. That's a big one. And it also, you know, might produce a mood alteration or they start craving like, you know, checking that Instagram or, you know, find value or worth in, in that behavior. Yes. You know, some research even shows that getting likes on social media activates these similar neural pathways that are linked to drug cravings. Mm -hmm. like drug cravings. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. So essentially then social media in many ways can access the brain's dopamine circuitry. That's our feel good circuitry. And it's, it's also been shown that younger people appear to be more susceptible to being affected in this way. Of course, because their brains aren't developed fully yet. Which, you know, makes sense then when, you know, a parent takes away some sort of screen from a child and you witness that the child has this like a really intense meltdown. I wonder what the research is on this, but I wonder if the meltdowns are more intense now between like taking away a, a toy versus taking away an electronic stimulus. That's so interesting. Yeah. I also, it makes me think of, I mean, it depends how old the child is, but have they developed a true sense of object permanence yet? Like, do they think you're taking it away forever or temporarily? And with addiction, it can feel like forever, even when it is temporarily. Yes. Great point. So I'm also prompted as we talk about this to think about episode two, which was the five types of coping skills. And the most common hands down in our culture is distraction, right? And social media is a means of distraction. And then in episode five, which was the socially acceptable things people do to avoid feeling, one of those things is using their phones to distract or tune out from what you're feeling or experiencing. So this is a majorly prevalent and recurring topic and a very, very common way to numb or avoid difficult emotions, especially in our culture. 
But also I do want to emphasize, and I think we both want to emphasize that there are true benefits that social media does bring us. Like it's not all bad. These are five things that you really need to be mindful of and watch out for as potential pitfalls. But there's also like a wealth of education that you can find through social media and opportunity, access and exposure. I'm thinking things like in small businesses or even larger businesses, like marketing wise, um, you know, personal travel and exploration, finding new local shops and restaurants. I know I use it to do that quite a bit. Um, or even just seeking support, right? If you are able to um, connect with others and be vulnerable, and maybe they can show up for you in ways online that they couldn't in person, especially in during COVID and quarantine. Absolutely. Like the word that comes to mind is access. Yes. Like we just have such so much more access to things that can be really helpful to us. And I've, you know, I think we're all witnessing really meaningful social and systemic changes that come from being connected to others on social media and being able to meet others online that you otherwise wouldn't be able to because of, you know, geography or or just not having had that opportunity. I think about, you know, the GoFundMe pages online and even like organ donorships, like all this amazing yeah. stuff is being facilitated on the web and we wouldn't have access to it otherwise. And even being social, right? So like I know a lot of my clients play online games, either like video gaming or other consoles like that, where they're able to feel like a sense of belonging because they find others that have similar interests and they get to do something that they love together, even though they are maybe physically apart. Right. Yeah. It's all, those are some great benefits. And because of these amazing aspects, we really want to emphasize that social media can be an amazing benefit when, and only when we have healthy boundaries with it. So we want to give you several healthy boundaries that you can just institute to make sure that you don't fall into those pitfalls. And the first is permission to unplug. And, you know, this is when social media has, or checking social media has really started to feel like a requirement to you. And maybe just considering, you know, what would it feel like to take a break? When was the last time you just sat in silence? And I ask this to some of my clients, especially extroverts, and they are so bewildered and almost fearful of sitting with themselves in silence. And that's something to really explore for yourself, that discomfort, because, you know, when that opportunity is prompted for you to be able to do that, is that when you reach for your phone? And what might that mean? And, you know, what might be underlying that, that fear and that discomfort? Great point. You know, and I think a way to test that within yourself is possibly to delete that app, whichever app you go to the most often off of your phone or off of your iPad and see how many times you just like mindlessly would go to check it. And it's like not there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So I've done this quite a bit um, when I feel like I'm in like a social media or just electronic loop. And I want to be like, whoa, am I doing this because I need to be checking it? Or is this just like a habit? And I just completely remove the app from my phone. Uh, another thing that I've started practicing is like leaving my phone in the car or like not taking it with me into like the hair salon or whatever. Um, when I know that I'm going to have some downtime and I would feel a little awkward just like sitting and waiting wherever I am. But 
that it would be a great opportunity for me to practice like mindfulness or connecting with another person or just thinking, right? Yeah. So that's a little bit trickier, but it's a cool thing to explore. Yeah. Just kind of challenging yourself. Like if you're going, if you're meeting a friend in the park, not bringing your phone, as long as it's like a safe park right. and you know who you're meeting. <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Which I think brings up the important um, topic of setting time limits, right? So social media was designed to become addicting. Like this is not a secret. Like people know this. It has been articulated by the CEOs that, that it's proven that when you receive a like or a comment, it can shoot off dopamine in your brain. Like we talked about before that, you know, reward circuitry in the mind that leads to addiction. And you have to know yourself and your body when you're using social media. So if you're feeling that constant need to check your phone, maybe you just need to be more strict about setting limits. Mm-hmm. And one way you can do this is to schedule downtime in your settings. On um, most phones, have this um, where they will disable certain apps for your choose your that you choose to disable during selected times. So, I mean, personally, um, my way of setting limits with myself that works for me is just kind of giving myself permission to unplug for the most part on the weekends. Um, I reserve my weekend time for friends and family and self-care. And occasionally there's a few exceptions, like if I receive a really important message and kind of need to reply to, or there's a special event that I you know, want to document that's cool. But this is a boundary I've set with myself and it really works for me. And I've allowed myself to disengage and to actually feel good about the choice to just kind of stay off social media for the most part on the weekends. Yeah, and then I think... I think that's a great point. And also maybe taking a break from certain things that you're looking at. So choosing what you see and what you engage with. Yes. Your feed on social media can play a huge role in what you think about during the day, because if you really consider it, it's what is coming in. It's the feedback or the um, input that that's the word I was looking for input that you get on a daily basis. So take time and really evaluate what you want to see. You have the power to tell social media what you do and don't want to see for the most part, right? Because they're targeting us with ads, but it's based on what you're searching. So is that a good choice? And is that a healthy choice for you? And you can use your newsfeed to feed your mind, literally whatever you want. So choose it very carefully and don't be afraid to delete and unfollow. Yeah, absolutely. And when you are making those choices of what you do want to follow, be mindful that it's feeding your ultimate goal. And if your ultimate goal, like if you're working on self-love and compassion, you know, maybe we stay away from following influencers that may not encourage you to be your best self. Mm -hmm. I I mean, body shaming comes to mind. Um, Just the pure highlight reels with no realistic depictions of, you know, what really might be going on. Like things like that can just be kind of dangerous. And then lastly, um, a way to just set boundaries with yourself and, and limits is to find better and healthier boredom boosters. So when social media is our go-to, we really kind of lose our ability to think creatively about other alternatives that we could be doing. So think things like books, walks, online learning. Like when you really think about it, the options are limitless. And one thing I recommend to my clients is to consider making a list simply in a Word document or your phone of activities you enjoy or consider fun. And this sounds like really simple, but if you actually try to do it and then 
think about and look at how many of the activities on that list that you're actually doing or could be doing, it's really eye-opening. I've done this myself and it almost became more of a bucket list of like, why am I not doing more of these things? Mm-hmm. Um, so on mine were like concerts or like, I really want to go to a hot air balloon festival. That was on my list this year. <laughs> um, and unfortunately COVID, right. Um, and that's, I think a big challenge this year and what is probably increasing people's, um, time on screens because they feel like they don't have as many options, but that's an even better reason, in my opinion, to make this list and, and really consider what are my options? Cause it's easy to feel stuck or trapped or restricted in the current situation that we're in. And then that can just kind of put you in a stressed state. Yeah. I just want to emphasize like how important the idea of having fun is even as adults and especially as adults to connect to. Absolutely. So, you know, social media is not bad, right? It can add a lot of value to our lives, but the trick then is finding an appropriate balance so that we're not letting that run the show. Yes. So in wrapping up this episode, we're also wrapping up season one. And this first season has been a greater success than either of us imagined. And we just can't thank you all enough for following along as dedicated listeners. It's been a real joy to connect with each and every one of you. It truly has. And on a more personal note, we have been keeping a little secret. And (laughs) that is that we are both expecting... So it has been quite the journey navigating the launch of our podcast through pregnancy, but we are thankful that we are on this journey as moms together. We should come back and do a whole episode, like real life behind the scenes of navigating first trimester and recording a new podcast and launching it. But yeah, maybe there will be an episode on you know, what people don't tell you about new motherhood next season. Mm -hmm. We will be back before you know it with a brand new content and would love to incorporate some of your episode suggestions into season two's lineup. So please reach out with your requests. We can't wait to see you in season two. Thank you for inviting us into your day. We hope you enjoyed the information shared in this episode. As a reminder, this podcast is not a substitute for therapy. We encourage you to reach out to a licensed mental health professional to support you in continued growth. Be sure to subscribe to be the first to know when new episodes launch, to rate and review us on iTunes, and follow us on Instagram at ABC Therapy and at Your Journey Through.